Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Dr. Lois Swirsky-Gold, Director of the Carcinogenic Potency Project, University of California, Berkeley, and Professor Bruce Ames, Director of the Environmental Health Services Center, University of California, Berkeley, discuss the causes and prevention of cancer. We hope you enjoy today's episode, and don't forget to subscribe for the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Lois, good to see you. So let's talk about some of the myths and the reality of cancer prevention. It's an exciting time about cancer prevention now because people are starting to under, really understand the causes of cancer. I think why don't we start off with talking about cigarettes because obviously that's one of the big killers out there. Yes. But there's some myths to do with cigarettes too. Yeah. Yes, and one of them uh, is that the idea that because lung cancer rates have increased over time in the last several decades uh, due to lung cancer, due to cigarette smoking, people have the misconception that overall cancer rates in the United States are increasing. But in fact, this is primarily due to cigarette smoking. Uh, it dominates the statistics. And uh, now that there, some men have stopped smoking, we're seeing over time, now we're beginning to see a decline in, in lung cancer death rates due to smoking. Smoking causes about 30 to 35% of cancer in the United States, primarily lung cancer deaths, uh, but also other cancers, of, for example, the oral cavity and uh, the bladder. Uh, so uh, I think the, the evidence on cigarette smoking is the strongest epidemiology that we have and the most well understood on causes of cancer. In women, uh, lung cancer death rates are still going up because they started smoking later and it takes 20 to 30 years to develop lung cancer typically. Uh, and the effects are still being seen, but women smoke at much lower rates, many fewer women than men smoke. And so the overall death from lung cancer due to cigarette smoking is much reduced in women compared to men. Now, cigarette smoking causes 90% of lung cancer, which is the main cancer death, uh, the main cancer causing death in the United States. And so it, 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 it masks, it covers everything else. It, it, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think it would be good if you talked yeah. a bit about yeah. some of the um, uh, biochemistry uh, and um, the biology yeah. of, of yeah. lung cancer. So smoking, you're getting about this much tar coating your lungs with, with two packs a day. But you're also getting, whenever you burn anything, you get nitrogen oxides and they're powerful oxidizing agents. So what they do is deplete your vitamin C and your vitamin E, which protect you against oxidation. And so uh, that's uh, another deleterious effect of, about smoking because it's like a ra a radiation is an oxidative mutagen. So when you smoke, you're depleting your vitamin C and vitamin E. So it's kind of like getting irradiated. So smokers ought to really be taking extra vitamin C and E, and the epidemiology seems to indicate that. The smokers who eat their fruits and vegetables have less lung cancer than the smokers who don't. You can't solve all the problems, but at least you can do that. So overall, smoking is about 400,000 premature deaths a year, and it's a third of the cancer, a quarter of the heart disease, so it's a really huge killer out there. But now, young women and young men smoke the same. Teenagers, 
young women and young men smoke the same. And so we're going to have an epidemic of lung cancer in young women because it takes 20 or 30 years. And it dominate, as Lois said, it dominates the cancer statistics. So cancer death rates have come down something like 16% since 1950. Yet everybody, if you leave aside the cancer due to smoking, yet everybody talks about a cancer epidemic, but it's a cancer epidemic due to smoking. Yes, and also I think people see more cancer because life expectancy continues to increase in the United States, mm. and you see more old people. And cancer is a disease of old age. Yeah. It increases yeah. exponentially with age. And therefore, you're just seeing Uncle Tom die of cancer, whereas years back, he may have died of pneumonia or a some heart other disease. heart disease, which we have made great strides in preventing. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's the big killer out there. And the second big killer is bad diets. And that's one of the areas I do my research on. So I'd like to talk a little bit about why that's where I think the gold is. I mean, we all know that smoking causes cancer, but very few people know what's important in diet to prevent cancer. Could I just add one sure. other thing yeah. about uh, the cancer death rates over time uh, are declining, as you say, but one other reason people think of cancer rates as going up is that we have improved screening so dramatically uh, for breast cancer, prostate cancer, that we see an increase in incidence, but we have improved survival tremendously, and it's, we don't have an increase in the death rates, but because we're able to detect cancer of the breast, for example, earlier and to treat it more successfully, uh, we see more breast cancer just because we're detecting it earlier. Yeah, yeah. So, so diet, what's important about diet? Well, diet's a hard subject to get your hands on because it's complicated and uh, people in different countries have different diets. And, but one thing is becoming pretty clear. There are over 200 epidemiological studies showing that fruits and vegetables protect you against cancer. And if epidemiologists divide the population up into quarters, so if you take the quarter eating the fewest fruits and vegetables, the next quarter, the next quarter, and the quarter eating the most fruits and vegetables, say in the United States, the quarter eating the fewest fruits and vegetables has double the cancer rate for practically every type of cancer of the, compared to the quarter eating the most fruits and vegetables. And there's so many studies, as I say, there are 200 studies that are amazingly consistent showing that for practically every type of cancer. So that raises several questions. How do you get people to eat more fruits and vegetables? What's in fruits and vegetables? And then there's some interesting interactions, which I can talk about between lung cancer and good uh, and eating your fruits and vegetables and between stomach cancer and eating your fruits and vegetables. I think we ought yeah. to say that um, the American diet doesn't typically include a lot of fruits and vegetables. 80% right. of our kids don't eat their five portions of fruits and vegetables and something like 70% of adults don't eat. And the main vegetable in the diet is potatoes from french fries among adolescents in yeah, America. Which is a much better source than... <laughs> than uh, of fat than uh, vitamins. Right. So, so what's in fruits and vegetables? And I'd like to make the case that your micronutrients, which include the vitamins and minerals you need in a normal diet, are at least a major part of it. There may be other things we don't understand, but at least there's starting to be pretty clear evidence 
that you need certain vitamins, otherwise you get DNA damage, which is known to lead to cancer. And in a way, some of these are working in the exact same way as radiation. So it's equivalent to irradiating yourself if you don't get your folic acid or your vitamin B12 or your vitamin B6. So we worked on a folic acid. So folic acid is one of the vitamins that, and the Latin word folia means leaf. So it, it comes from, a foliage is the same root. So folic acid comes from things like spinach. And, and, green, and, and lettuce, dark lettuce. green lettuce and other greens. And what does folic acid do? It moves one carbon unit around in metabolism. Well, if you don't get enough folic acid, turns out you're breaking your chromosomes. And one of my graduate students worked out why, how you break your chromosomes when you don't get enough folic acid. And, when, and it's in the exact same way that radiation breaks chromosomes. You get a a cut on both strands of the DNA and your chromosome falls apart. Now, when we looked up what percent of the population was getting, had an intake of folic acid where they're breaking their chromosomes, it was 10% of the US population. That's a lot of people. And then when you look at the poor, they're eating much worse diets. They're eating fewer fruits and vegetables and everything's, the, particularly people in the inner cities are just, at the getting the brunt of this damage because they're eating even worse diets. So, so that shook us up that, hey, this is something really important in the country. And fit, where do you get your folic acid? From your fruits and vegetables. And then vitamin B6, which you get from your peas and beans, and also a lot from your fruits and vegetables, turns out works in the exact same way. It breaks your chromosomes in the same way as folic acid. And then vitamin B12, which you get from your meat, breaks your chromosomes in the same way. Now, if, of course, if you take a multivitamin pill, you get enough of all of these things. But at least 10% of the population is low in vitamin B6, really low. 10% is really low in folate. And 14% of the elderly are really low in vitamin B12. So we're talking about a lot of people. And then when I got interested in all of this, I started looking at other vitamins. Well, vitamin C and vitamin E prevent you from getting oxidized. So that work breaks chromosomes in the same way as radiation. And 15% of the population is really low in vitamin C and 20% is really low in vitamin E. So when you look at any of these inputs you need to your metabolism, micronutrients, 5% of the population is really low or 10% is really low. So we're talking about a very large number of people, yet a multivitamin pill will solve the problem. Now, you could argue, well, what about food fortification? And in fact, uh, there's a terrible birth defect for pregnant women who don't get enough folic acid. That's why pregnant women ought to take a, a multivitamin pill of folate, and it's called neural tube defects. And poor women weren't, taking a, weren't doing what they were supposed to, so now we're adding folic acid to the flour, and we're essentially eliminating most of the problem. Not completely, but... I think it's useful to add yeah, that yeah. W w even though it's hard to measure uh, the effects of diet, that in cases like vitamin C, we can do cl clinical trials. And the work you did on folic acid, you actually looked at people who were low in folic acid, and then they were supplemented with folic acid. So you had a relatively controlled environment yeah. in which to investigate this mm -hmm. hypothesis. So the data is far better than what you can usually just yeah, get in an yeah, epidemiologic study yeah, where people select yeah, themselves yeah, into the yeah. study. So in epidemiology, you're studying large numbers of people. 
And there are a lot of problems with that, though the top people are doing really nice epidemiology. This study out of Harvard, where they have 90,000 nurses, and Willett and other people are studying nurses who take a vitamin pill and nurses who do this or that and what happens, and they followed them for many years. But with things like vitamins, you can do small intervention studies. That is, you can take 10 people and treat them like rats. You control everything. You control Mm -hmm. the diet, and you only vary one thing, and that's the level of this particular vitamin. And then you can measure things in people, chromosome breaks or whatever, and really see that it makes a difference. So that's a much more powerful kind but of But you're study. not saying that megadoses of vitamins or it's a good thing to take folic acid or vitamin yeah. C, so you should take much, much more of it than the yeah. RDA. Yeah. You're talking about levels that are... Yeah, or just getting everybody up to snuff. So that's the problem. You tell people, ah, selenium is good for them, and it is, but 5% of the population are going to take so much selenium, they'll poison themselves because yeah. you need 15 milligrams of zinc and you get DNA damage if you don't get enough zinc. But if you take 60 milligrams, it's already starting to be at the toxic level. So in some of these, there's a fairly small window. Others, like vitamin C, there's a very large window. You can take a gram of vitamin C and it's not going to hurt you, even though you only need about 100 milligrams. So, uh, but that's, uh, you, so all I'm saying is that a multivitamin pill with a recommended daily allowance is good insurance for people. And in fact, a quarter of the population take them, but it's the rich eating good diets taking them, and the people who need them are the poor. And it's cheap. You, in Costco or a place like that, you can buy a multivitamin pill for two cents. So $7 a year, you, you have a multivitamin pill every day of the year, and it gives you the vitamin D you need and the f- vitamin C and the folic acid, everything. And in contrast yeah. to what you're yeah. saying, the yeah. common perception is that People are afraid of the pesticide residues in yeah. fruits and vegetables. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, so pesticides are a public health advance because they lower the price of fruits and vegetables. Right. Lois is, is an expert on pesticides, so she'll talk about that later, why that's been a little bit overblown. But at least we, there's so much evidence that fruits and vegetables are important, and yet the public doesn't know that the two major things in lowering the cancer rate are not to smoke and eat your Eat a good diet. I think we've done a good yeah. public health campaign on smoking. I think people know that smoking yeah. will yeah. will increase yeah. phenomenally your risk yeah. of lung cancer. Yeah, it's about eight years uh, off your life if years. you're a two-pack-a-day mm-hmm. smoker. Mm-hmm. Well, I suspect it's a, probably a similar life shortening if you're eating a really bad diet. Well, we'll be able to study yeah. that and know. That's a yeah. big hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, but at least most yeah. of the top epidemiologists yeah. just think diet is as important as smoking. Yes, yeah. So, and, and it's many co- yeah, types of cancer. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, what we see so far, again, the evidence is not as strong yeah. as it is with smoking for particular foods or particular vitamins and particular cancers. But reproductive cancers like breast cancer, prostate cancer, the data is a little less strong. But for most other cancers, it really does yeah. look like people who eat fruits and vegetables really have a, a yeah. big impact yeah. Yeah. on the risk yeah. of getting cancer. Now, that's not to say you should just take a vitamin pill and not eat your fruits and vegetables, because we don't understand everything about fruits and vegetables. But one should look at a multivitamin pill as insurance. Now, the pill people have one for men and one for women. Why? Because women are losing iron all the time, and men are, there's some evidence that maybe they're getting too much iron. 
So probably a man should, or a woman after menopause should take a pill without iron or very low levels of iron, and women should take a pill with lots of iron because they're losing it, and anemia is bad. Right, and silver yeah. Yeah. Uh, vitamins are intended yeah. to do that. They have, so they have pills for old people and young people. Now, if you add iron to the flour, which we're doing in the country, then you help the women, but we're not adding quite enough, and you hurt the men. So in that way, a pill, you're taking control of your own life. If you and do it. If you do it, and you should be eating your five portions of fruits and vegetables a day, and then take a pill as insurance. For example, vitamin D is a hormone. It's called a vitamin, but it's really a hormone. But, and you make it in your own body, but one step to make it requires ultraviolet light from the sun. So that's why people in northern climates like the Swedes have very light skin because they're not getting enough ultraviolet light. And people in southern climates like the Africans or the southern Indians or the people in New Guinea. You're talking in evolutionary terms. Racially here. very different people have dark <laughs> skin because it protects them against the burning part of ultraviolet light. Life is full of all kinds of trade-offs. Well, you don't, if you're a dark-skinned person in Minnesota, you're not getting enough ultraviolet light to make your vitamin D. So you either drink fortified milk or take a multivitamin pill, or you're in trouble. So maybe we yeah. ought to move on to some of yeah. the other major uh, causes yeah. of cancer. And uh, one of those worldwide is, is uh, chronic uh, infections. Uh, for example, hepatitis B and C virus, which cause liver cancer and liver cancer kills 500 million people in Asia, uh, it, it's an enormous uh, problem. It's much, much less of a problem in the United States. Yeah. Uh, and many other chronic yeah. infections, right. you wanted to talk about yeah. that, I think. Yeah, and that's... so I've been interested in that in terms of the mechanism because your immune system detects foreign, anything, any invader that's foreign. So you get a virus into you or a bacteria or a worm and your white cells migrate to that and incinerate it with really nasty compounds, nitrogen oxide, superoxide, hydrogen peroxide, and hypochlorite, which is just Clorox. All these nasty oxidizing agents, but they're also all mutagens. So it makes sense that if you have a chronic infection, you're going to get cancer because you're damaging all your DNA and cells are turning over. And that's exactly what people find. The World Health Organization has estimated Maybe 20% of the world's cancer is due to chronic infection from hepatitis B or hepatitis C or helicobacter in your stomach or uh, schistosomiasis. There's a long list of these things. But in the U.S., we're in pretty good shape in terms of public health. So it's not a major factor. Just the, the way if, the you drink, if you drink too much, it wrecks your liver and increases your risk of liver cancer. Hepatitis B kind of does the yes, same. Yes, we should have mentioned that under yeah, the causes yeah, of cancer yeah, yeah. Uh, having to do with diet because yeah. alcohol probably does call, cause 5% of cancer yeah, in yeah, the United yeah, States, yeah. which is not a yeah, trivial yeah. Uh, amount. Yeah. So chronic infection mm -hmm. is a serious thing. And since these agents are mostly oxidizing agents, it could be that extra vitamin C and vitamin E in your diet helps to modulate it a little. And it's clear that, that people, uh, stomach cancer, for example, is due to helicobacter in large part, an uh, infection in your stomach. You can cure it with antibiotics. And the people <coughs> who eat good diets seem to have less of, a, of damage, partly because you're pouring out oxidants and you get your vitamin C from your fruits and vegetables. So just the way when you eat your fruits and vegetables, it protects you against lung cancer from smoking because you're getting a lot of oxid nitrogen oxides and other oxidants in the cigarette smoke. So 
that all seems to make sense in interactions. Yes, and in the yeah. U.S., yeah. where hepatitis B yeah. and C are relatively rare, yeah. we see very little liver, little liver cancer. It's very rare in the United States compared to these enormously high yeah. rates in right. Asia and Africa. Yeah. Except among alcoholics. And, and yeah. in the, except, yes, and in the United States, we can account for a great deal of the liver cancer that we do see by either alcohol consumption or hepatitis B and C. Right. Uh, which we're not absent of. Yeah. Yeah. So, so why don't you talk a little bit about hormones, because that's another major cause. Right. So hormones uh, have an enormous amount to do with breast cancer. Uh, there's a large, large and consistent literature uh, on the causes of breast cancer, which uh, points to the importance of estrogen, uh, an endogenous hormone, uh, in producing uh, breast cancer. And what we see in the epi epidemiology is that women who have more children or more pregnancies, uh, when you're pregnant, you don't produce estrogen the way you do when you're not pregnant. And so you have a stop out time and your total lifetime estrogen production is lowered uh, for the time of pregnancy. So women who have no children have a higher risk of breast cancer than women who have some children and women who have more children or children earlier uh, have a higher risk of breast cancer. And similarly, uh, young women who begin to menstruate at a younger age have an increased risk because they start producing estrogen younger. Mm -hmm. And women yeah. whose menarche, uh, whose menopause begins earlier, uh, produce estrogen less in later life. And so they ha also have a reduced risk of breast cancer. Yeah, it's been known for 200 years that nuns have higher risks of breast cancer <laughs> right. than not having children. Right. So even though it's estrogen, all sorts of things influence it. Like you're having, you have lots of children, you're protected. And then you want to say something about exercise? Well, first let me say that the, the it, to the extent that we see increases in some populations in breast cancer rates, uh, it's complicated by the screening, of course, the improved mammography. But in addition, uh, when people in America, are ha women are having fewer children, they're having them later. So these factors that we know affect the risk of breast cancer are factors that we, by our lifestyle, uh, are likely to be increasing the breast cancer risk. So. Uh, many times uh, we are reading about uh, the risk of exogenous hormones uh, or estrogenic compounds that are synthetically produced like DDT that might have an effect on breast cancer rates. Um, but uh, uh, when the studies have been done, uh, the, the factors of lifestyle that we do know are causes of breast cancer account for the increase in whatever risk is seen in that population, like on Long Island yeah. or in the San Francisco yeah. Bay Area. Yeah, so there are huge uh, risk factors to do with your lifestyle, which doesn't mean it's hopeless. Now, women don't want to have a child every year anymore, <laughs> but it isn't hopeless because good people, there's a very good group in Los Angeles, Henderson and Pike, are working on this, and as they start understanding mechanisms, they're coming up with all kinds of ways to alter your hormonal balance. And then there's a somewhat more iffy area. In Japan, Japanese women have low rates of breast cancer. Now, partly that might be stature and children, other things, but it also, Japanese women eat a lot of soybeans, and soybeans have some weak 
estrogens in them, but they actually kind of gum up the receptor for the estrogen, so they act as an anti-estrogen. So some people think, ah, that may effectively lower your effective estrogen levels. Now that's not really pinned down, but there's a lot of interest in that area. So there are going to be lots of ways to intervene once we understand all of this. And of course, this relates to diet, and there's some recent studies about infants on soy milk, which show enormously high levels of uh, isoflavones uh, in plasma, which uh, which would be a, an enormous concern, if, uh, but it should be an enormous concern and warrants further research, whereas the 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 media uh, attention seems to be on this issue of the added risk of exogenous hormones due to synthetic compounds uh, that may have estrogenic effects, yeah, whereas that all seems so this small. seems so yeah. small and they're yeah. very weak estrogens on the yeah. one hand yeah. and the amounts are, are thousands of times lower than uh, what you're going to be getting from uh, the normal diet and your your endogenous production. So, uh, and also just the amount of estrogenic compounds in the normal diet, you're eating them all the time. And soy is is one with a high concentration, but you're eating them in many, many foods, fruits and vegetables. So that brings us to chemicals. Why don't you say a little bit about occupational chemicals and then synthetic chemicals? Because that area has been there are a lot of myths out there. Yeah. Yes, there are a lot of myths and mis- misconceptions. Occupational cancer uh, is easier to identify because we have a smaller group of people who unfortunately, historically, have sometimes been exposed to extraordinarily high uh, uh, chemical exposures in the air and workplace. For example, uranium miners or nickel miners uh, or people in the vinyl chloride uh, industry uh, and we can identify uh, the cancer more easily because A, we have a high dose, B, we have a small group of people who we can compare yeah, yeah, to a group yeah, that isn't similarly yeah, exposed. Yeah. But overall, it's not a major factor in cancer. It's, it's, a, it's few a few percent, percent probably, yeah. but the public has the yeah, idea that yeah. it's been a much greater percentage right, yeah, just yeah, because... Yeah, yeah. Those are yeah, the known yeah, causes yeah, of cancer yeah, come from yeah, occupational exposures, yeah. often mo- from occupational exposures. And most exposures. of that few percent was asbestos and heavy smokers, the people who were insulating buildings or ships during the war. They were around in clouds of asbestos. We have much tighter rules now. And there were heavy smokers, and there's a big multiplier between those two. That's right. So um, why don't you say so something just, about synthetic chemicals, because that's where there's so right, many so myths One thing I there. do want to say is that although... We, we see these occupational cancers, they are very often to chemicals that occur naturally. They are not to man-made chemicals. They occur in industrial process, but it's coal tar or nickel or cadmium or chromium uh, or asbestos chemical uh, uh, elements that we know have been present throughout evolution and which are naturally occurring compounds. Yeah. So I think the public has had the vast misconception uh, that tiny residues of synthetic industrial chemicals are an important cause of human cancer in the United States, or in fact, in, in almost anywhere, I would say. It's a misconception. Um, and I think this misconception stems basically from the idea that synthetic chemicals are bad and natural chemicals are good, or 
that a chemical is defined as a synthetic chemical. That is, we, we don't tend to think of the fruits and vegetables we're eating or our cup of coffee uh, as having, quote, chemicals in it, or many people don't. And they, they think of that sort of it's coffee. But in fact, there are a thousand chemicals that have been identified in coffee. And when they- Natural chemicals. Naturally, that's right, only natural chemicals. And many of those are produced by roasting, but many of them also are just a part of the coffee plant. And uh, about 35 of those have been tested for carcinogenicity in the same cancer tests that are used to study synthetic chemicals. And it turns out that a very high proportion more than 60% are rodent carcinogens, and that's very similar to the proportion of synthetic chemicals in coffee. In fact, it's higher uh, that turn out to be positive carcinogens when yeah. they're studied yeah. in rodent yeah. studies. So uh, maybe I've jumped the gun a little bit just to say that the method by which we identify chemicals that cause cancer when we don't have epidemiologic data, which is nearly all the time, has been to study a chemical in rodents uh, because they're a short-lived species, uh, and we test the highest dose we can because it costs a few million dollars to study uh, rats and mice for a given chemical for carcinogenicity, even when we only use 50 animals at two doses and a control group. And so we've tried to be parsimonious and the, therefore using the high dose the highest dose an animal would tolerate, in fact, which is an extraordinarily high dose and which we know will produce some toxic effects over the lifetime of the animal. And we run it for the life, and then we look for all the tumors we can yeah. find. And in that way, we've identified chemicals as potential human carcinogens. Now, one of the problems with this is nearly all the chemicals that have been studied are synthetic industrial chemicals, whereas nearly all the chemicals that people are exposed to are naturally occurring chemicals. That is, we eat grams a day of burnt material and uh, of what we've called natural pesticides, the chemicals that a plant produces to defend itself against predators like insects. Um, and uh, the amounts of pesticide residues in the average American diet is 10,000 times lower. So 99.9% .9 of the chemicals or pesticides that we're eating are naturally occurring chemicals. And I think the public has very little understanding of that. Yeah. Uh, well, also people who did animal cancer tests, they said, ah, we're gonna test all these chemicals in rats so people aren't the guinea pigs. And they, because these tests are expensive, they loaded the rat down with the maximum amount of chemical they could give it and fed it every day at a lifetime at a level just under the level that would kill the rat and then made a lot of assumptions. Well, all these assumptions are turning out to be wrong. One assumption was carcinogens are going to be rare, but as Lois has shown in our carcinogenic potency database, half of all the chemicals ever tested, whether synthetic or natural, come out positive in, when you give these huge, huge doses to rats. And there are a lot of reasons for thinking there might be high dose effects that are not relevant at low doses. But in any case, you test the chemicals in cup of coffee, half of those come out positive. You test the chemicals in cabbage, half of those come out positive. So there's something wrong with these huge doses, but we've been just been doing primarily synthetic chemicals and then scaring everybody, ah, it's a carcinogen. We have to get rid of parts per billion of that. And okay, so, so high doses yeah. of anything yeah. are more of a risk for most toxic effects 
then low doses. And it's the very, very low doses of synthetic pesticides that people are getting, yeah. which there is a lack of understanding about, in part because the way we've done risk assessment in the United States, that is, we set limits on the amount of pesticides that can appear in the diet or chemicals that can appear in water. And historically, the way we've, we've dealt with this data is to assume a linear model uh, down to a low dose. But in fact, in addition to that, we've made incredible, and I really mean incredible, assumptions about the actual levels of exposure. Mm -hmm. Uh, for example, in, in uh, the FDA, they conduct every year a total diet study where produce is taken from the supermarket four times a year in different geographic areas, and it's mashed up, and then all these various chemicals that are used as pesticides are measured down to one part per billion, which is a very tiny yeah, amount because yeah. we have very good instrumentation now, and we're able to do that. And... Uh, the risk uh, estimates are based on a hypothetical exposure level. Yeah. And that hypothetical exposure level, for example, uh, assumes that every uh, acre that is used to produce tomatoes, for example, uh, uses a, each pesticide that's allowed on tomatoes, and there may be 50 pesticides allowed on tomatoes, nobody could no farmer could afford to use all 50. There'd be no reason to. It might use zero or one or two. Most people use zero or one. But the assumption is that every acre in America yeah. and 100% of that acre uses 100% of the allowable pesticides of, of every single yeah. one of them. And then that the amount on the food yeah, eaten yeah. is equal to the amount that's on the plant the day yeah. before it's harvested. Yeah, yeah. And there's a tremendous loss of residue over yeah, time. If yeah, you process yeah. the food, there's even okay. less. If you wash yeah. your fruits okay. and vegetables, there's okay. even less. And yeah. so they are very yeah. tiny little, and it's not toxicologically yeah. plausible yeah. that these tiny amounts could really, produce tumors. And right, all the yeah. risks would be low yeah. if we were yeah. using the measured residues, but yeah, instead yeah. we're taking a hypothetical maximum. Yeah. So that's the problem when you get regulatory agencies, they tend to go overboard because they're protecting they're the public. They're protecting but in the, the worst meantime, public. The public is completely confused because when you have a thousand hypothetical minuscule risks, you're completely lost because nobody knows what's important. And we're spending, EPA regulations cost $140 billion a year You'd save 150 times more lives for the dollar if you did a medical intervention and a toxin intervention, and they're fake lives with a toxin intervention anyway. And yet we're not spending the money to get the poor to eat a good diet, which will really make a difference. So in the end, we've shot ourselves in the foot by overemphasizing these tiny levels of synthetic chemicals and ignoring the things that we're doing to ourselves, which is 95% of the problem. But I, I'd like to end on an yeah. optimistic yeah. note yeah. that uh, that we're doing a lot of great science and that we're identifying some genetic polymorphisms that may uh, make some people more predisposed mm -hmm. uh, to cancers of a given type right. than other. Uh, regulatory agencies are suggesting that they're going to be looking more at mechanistic data on the causes of cancer. That is how a particular chemical works and why there might be a threshold 
or why you might not have effects at low dose yeah. in a okay. human. And so there is uh, a There's great some deal of, but of it's, optimism, yeah. I would say, in the war on cancer. Yeah. No, I'm very optimistic, but I'm not optimistic that the regulatory, regulatory agencies, agencies are, are going to move fast against much cancer. Yeah. I think it's people's own yes. behavior. Yes, but I think we are wasting a lot of money in yeah. that area, yeah. and yeah. maybe we would be yeah. able to move it right. into yeah. something else yeah. that would yeah. give us more basic yeah. If we eliminate all the pesticides, the poor are going to get cancer because yeah. organic food's a lot more expensive, and fruits and vegetables really protect you against cancer. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.